On Saturday, September 24, 1988, the body of 19-year-old Anthony Klan was discovered on the east side of Cleveland, Ohio, in Rockefeller Park's Stone Creek. He had been stabbed in the chest three times and his throat was slit on the verge of decapitation. The ground around him was undisturbed, suggesting that the murder occurred elsewhere. One of the three men who came to identify the body on Monday, September 26, and thus began to control the narrative, had arguably the most to gain from doing so. A convicted rapist and drug dealer named Paul Stoney Lewis, who Anthony Klan had once identified in another rape. The two other men supported Stoney's narrative at trial. During the investigation, a fourth man emerged. The victims cuckold Edward Espinoza, who joined the narrative and received leniency for the part he played in the murder in exchange for his false eyewitness testimony against his employer, Michael Keenan, and his co-worker, Joe D'Ambrosio. Now, some elements of the story were real and occurred on Thursday, September 22nd, but had little to do with the actual night of Anthony Klan's murder, Friday, September 23rd. Both Michael Keenan and Joe D'Ambrosio's whereabouts on Friday night were known, and despite Espinoza's two separate and contradictory affidavits, and knowing about the discrepancy between the two nights, the prosecution nevertheless forged ahead, hiding a mountain of exculpatory evidence and sending Joe D'Ambrosio and Michael Keenan straight to death row. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today.
Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today, you're going to hear the story of Joe D'Ambrosio, who is the sixth person to be exonerated from Ohio's death row, the 140th in America to be exonerated. Joe, this story is, I mean, it's got so many twists and turns. But let me just, for the audience's sake, before I even introduce you, let me just say, this involves a group of cops that were so corrupt that 44 of them were charged with taking money and protecting cocaine operations in Cleveland and Northern Ohio. This goes back to the 1980s, of course. It involves a date that was changed in order to make the case fit the facts instead of the other way around. It involves a dead body found in Doan's Creek that had been stabbed and slit throat and everything. I mean, this thing, I'm, I'm not even scratching the surface. I hate to say it, but you lived it. So, Joe, I'm sorry for what you went through, but I'm very, very grateful and honored that you're here on the show with us today. Thank you very much. And with us is a very unique individual <laughs> with a unique <laughs> name as well. We have Neil Kukuthe, who was a, one of the great heroes in this story, but who is also, when I say he's a unique individual, here's a guy who's a nurse, a lawyer, and a priest. I mean, that almost sounds like the punchline in a joke or the setup to a joke, right? <laughs> a nurse, a lawyer, and a priest walk in a bar, but then it was only one guy. Hey, and here he is. So Neil Kukuthe, thank you for being here with us today. It's good to be with you. And Joe, you were a guy who served in the U.S. Army, right? You achieved the rank of sergeant, is that correct? Yes. And were honorably discharged. But were you a guy who had had a lot of trouble with the law before this crazy thing happened? Tell us a little bit about your background, your upbringing. I grew up just outside of Cleveland in the suburbs, a little town called North Royalton. And only thing that was in that place was bars and gas stations and farms, so I kind of a country boy and I didn't want to stay and be one of those three things. So I joined the military as soon as I got out of high school. I did my four years in the military and then I got out. Honorably discharged sergeant out of the military. And then this thing comes out of the blue. I mean, is it fair to say that this could happen to you? It could happen to anyone? Oh, exactly. I'm the most common Joe there could be. Truly, all it takes is one person, no other evidence, one person to point their finger at you and say, they stood there and watched while you killed this person. And there you go. It's so nuts that you could have ended up on death row just because of one person with a lot to gain by saying so, right? An incentivized person. Right. So I'd like to set the stage a bit here. This is the late 80s in Little Italy on the east side of Cleveland, Ohio. Very reminiscent of Tony Aponovich's story, actually. You know, bar culture, lots of partying going on. And in this case, there's coke, drinking, and a group of friends and acquaintances, some of whom Joe worked with doing landscaping. And then there's a bit of crossover from that group into the drug business of a guy named Paul Stoney Lewis. So Stoney was just your local two-bit drug dealer down in the Little Italy neighborhood on the east side of Cleveland. And Anthony Clan was one of these guys that frequented Stoney, as was a number of the other guys, Michael Keenan in this case, Ed Espinoza, and others hung around together. Right. And something that needs to be pointed out here was that months before this murder occurred, back in May 1988, Stoney allegedly raped Anthony Klan's roommate, Chris Longenecker. And Anthony and Chris were both scheduled to testify against Stoney Lewis, but Chris Longenecker was 
legally blind and misread when they were supposed to appear in court. So Stoney was released, leaving Klan and Longenecker in danger. Now, you mentioned before Mike Keenan and Edward Espinoza, whom, from what I understand, had a landscaping business. Mike Keenan, Joe's kind of co-defendant in this whole mess, he was the owner, and Espinoza was his foreman. And Joe, around the end of August 1988, you were going to go back into the military, but you needed to wait on your discharge paperwork to be reissued. And while you waited, you worked for Mike Keenan. Do I have that right? Well, I needed a job to hold me over, and I grew up in the country cutting grasses like in my blood. So I got hired on September 1st, 1988, September 26th. I'm sitting in jail accused of the most heinous crime in the world. Right. But before we even get to that, I want to talk about Thursday night, September 22nd, 1988, a day before this murder occurred. It was the events of that night that were used to predicate the narrative that was used against you and Michael Keenan at both of your trials, while all along people had seen the victim here, Anthony Klan, alive the following night, Friday, September 23rd, one of whom even gave him cab fare home. But we'll get to that later. So let's go back to Thursday, the 22nd. On Thursday night of this week, all of these people, Eddie Espinoza, Mike Keenan with Mike Keenan's girlfriend, Anthony Clan, Joe D'Ambrosio, Paul Stoney Lewis, they were on a pub crawl through the Coventry area of Little Italy. And so they were all drinking that night. And Joe admittedly was part of this drinking group on Thursday night at these different bars. And at one of the bars, Joe, Joe, where was it where they got into the restroom fight? That was Coconut Joe's. So Anthony Klan and Eddie Espinoza got into a somewhat violent or at least raucous altercation in the men's room of the bar. There is some suspicion that Anthony Klan was having a sexual relationship with Eddie Espinoza's girlfriend. Anyway, that raucous scene at the bar caused the bouncer to throw them out. And Eddie Espinoza takes a beer bottle, slams it against the bar, breaks it in half, and starts threatening people. And so they're thrown out, and the night moves on. The police come. Everybody assures them that they're calmed down. There won't be any problem. And they go home. So we've got Eddie Espinoza, who's already in conflict with Tony Klan over something which we suspect is a triangular romantic relationship. And we got Paul Stoney Lewis, who's involved with Anthony Klan because Anthony Klan is a witness to this rape with Christopher Longenecker. And you've got both of those people who are involved with Anthony Klan from different perspectives. Okay, so we're going to come back to Thursday night and what eventually becomes the narrative of the case against Joe and Mike Keenan in a minute. But first, let's talk about what we know. On Saturday, September 23rd, 1988, 19-year-old Anthony Klan's body was found by a jogger on the east side of Cleveland in Rockefeller Park's Doan Brook or Doan Creek, depending on who you're talking to. They have different names for it. He had sustained multiple stab wounds to the chest and his throat had been slit so deeply that he had nearly been decapitated. Now, no murder weapon was ever found, and the body went unclaimed until Monday the 26th. That Monday, an anonymous caller called in to the morgue and asked if there was a 19-year-old kid, does he have this color hair, these color eyes, these tattoos, and these 
marks on his hands and wrists. And the detective got on the phone and the detective's like, yes, we have him. Can you come down and please identify him? The guy, he wouldn't identify himself. And then he hung up. Wow. Well, shortly after that, Stony Foot and Adam Flanick all went down to the morgue and identified Anthony. But the thing is, how did Stoney know about the defensive wounds on Anthony's hands and arms? All there was in the paper was a little blurb that an unidentified white male was found in Dome Creek. And that was it. Right. So at least it appears that the person on the phone knew things that only someone involved could have possibly known. And then, surprise, surprise, right after the Carter's office got this anonymous call, who shows up but Paul Stoney Lewis, James Russell, or as Joe called him, Foote, and Adam Flanick, three of the witnesses that helped put Joe and Mike Keenan on death row. Now, these three men identify the body and a narrative began to build that the murder happened on the night that you were all out together at the bar, which was Thursday, which is when Stoney went home early. However, the murder actually occurred on Friday. Eventually, investigators caught up with the guy who had fought with Klan on Thursday, Tony Klan's cuckold, Edward Espinoza who gave police a false eyewitness account claiming to have witnessed Joe and Mike Keenan commit the murder. Eddie Espinosa refers to him as Little Tony. And supposedly, uh, Little Tony is his best buddy, and he's going to do everything he can to protect Little Tony all along the way. And so Eddie Espinosa gets arrested and taken down to the station, and he swears out an affidavit that lists all of the dates, times, places, people, and everything. And then when the police come in and look at this, they realize that what Eddie Espinoza has put down in his affidavit does not fit the narrative that they want to paint of this case. And so they have him swear out another affidavit that literally gives different date, different times, different places so that the police can paint their narrative. And both of those affidavits to this very day, they exist in the file and you can put them side by side and you can see that somebody coached Eddie Espinosa to change his story up. Wow. They were like, no, no, that one's not so great. Am I doing that over? We'll just give you a, a little bit of... Uh, uh, right. We'll yeah, just... Within 48 hours of each other, two distinct affidavits sworn out by Eddie Espinosa. And then how in the world can anybody take anything that guy says seriously after that? Well, you know, when they want to get somebody, they get somebody. And Eddie Espinosa has a violent history. He was also in the service, dishonorably discharged for drugs and for violent behavior. So you got a guy with a violent history and a motive to kill as the spurned, cuckolded boyfriend of the woman with whom Anthony Klan was having an affair. And in his narrative events, after his fight with Anthony Klan at the bar, he and Joe headed back to Joe's apartment around 1.30 a.m., at which point Mike Keenan drove up and told them that Stoney had stolen drugs from him. Espinosa grabbed a bat, Joe grabbed a knife, and the three of them drove around looking for Paul Stoney Lewis. Now, again... What about this so far is true? Guess what? None of this shit even fucking matters because this is Thursday night, not the night of the murder, which was Friday. So lies, truth, 
it's utterly meaningless to even debate it. Now, another two witnesses supported this narrative. Carolyn Roselle and her friend, you'll remember him, James Russell, you know, his nickname was Foot, said that the three men knocked on Roselle's door looking for Stoney at around 3 a.m. After this encounter, Espinosa's narrative continues, saying that while driving along, they eventually saw Anthony Clan walk on the side of the road, forced him into the back seat, interrogated him about Stoney's whereabouts, and after Espinosa hit him with a bat, Clan told them Stoney's address. And the men proceed to Stoney's apartment building. Now, according to Stoney's neighbor, you'll remember him, of course, Adam Flanick. He first heard the group yelling at and banging on Stoney's door saying, I want my dope or I want my coke. So Flanick continued to claim to be able to see down into the car where you, Joe, were allegedly pointing a knife up to Anthony Clan's jaw, a view that would be totally impossible from any vantage point because of how the backseats and Kenyans pick up face one another. Well, we still don't know what Flanick had to gain from saying that. Maybe he was involved. Maybe he was coerced. Who knows? Maybe he was even confused. But what we do know is that, again, it really just doesn't fucking matter because Anthony Clan was not murdered that night, but the following night. Anyway... Back to Espinosa's narrative. The three men went back to Roselle's where they issued a warning for Roselle to deliver to Stoney that there was a, quote, contract out on him and that they had Clan in the car who was, quote, dead meat. Espinosa goes on to say that Clan eventually escaped from the car. Keenan allegedly then told Joe to finish him off. And then Joe allegedly ran after Clan. Clan begged for his life while Joe allegedly killed him with a knife. Again, this is a bogus recollection of Thursday night, and we know this because we later found out that Clan was seen alive again at Coconut Joe's on Friday night. He got drunk and was given cab fare by the barmaid, so that was Friday night, the night after this alleged Stony Lewis search party happened. And Joe, on Friday, your whereabouts were totally accounted for, correct? Right. I was getting near being able to go back into the military, and I was getting evicted. So I was having an eviction party that night, and there was a bunch of people that were over all night long. But the problem was, I'm terrible with names. Later, when we were able to identify some of the names that Joe was talking about, people who were indeed at that eviction party, one of them mentioned to me that on that Friday night, they were all gathered at Joe's apartment, and they were watching a football game. And so I'm like, who's got a Friday night football game? I'm doing this 10 years later. So I literally ended up doing some research at the Cuyahoga County Public Library for old editions of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And I was looking through the high school games that were being played on Friday night. And one of them was Brush High School on the east side of Cleveland. And names that we literally discovered later were there and remember watching that particular game. And that's the night that the murder actually took place, not the night that was sort of substituted. So you had all these people that could exonerate you, but you had no way to subpoena them to testify because you didn't have full names and numbers, nor did you have lawyers who were even particularly interested. And then you've got these guys who you've been working or just partying with for about the last month who are all spinning a narrative together to close this case for the authorities on you and your boss, Mike Keenan. And of course, I'm talking about Espinosa and Stoney Lewis, who would probably have thrown their own mother under the bus in order to save themselves from death row. Exactly so. 
because I barely knew any of these people. I think myself that it was Paul Stoney Lewis and Espinoza together killed Anthony because they both knew facts that only the murderer would know. And then they were able to point their finger elsewhere. So three men ultimately were charged with this gruesome murder. Michael Keenan, Edward Espinoza, and you, Joe. And it's important, again, to note that in exchange for his testimony against you and Keenan, who were tried separately, Espinoza pleaded guilty to manslaughter and was given the lesser sentence of 15 to 75 years in prison. Yes. So we know what his motivation was, and this is a guy who we know is a liar. You don't have to say he's a liar. You can't sign two sworn affidavits that are totally different within 48 (laughs) hours of each other and not be lying. Okay, let's get to the trial. Tell us a little about your representation. It should be lack thereof representation. If my attorneys would have believed me and did a little bit of investigation, I never would have been convicted because Father Neil, 10 years after the fact, was finding all this evidence with little work. So my attorneys did very little. One was running for mayor of a a little town at the time and couldn't be bothered. And the other one just didn't want anything to do with me because they didn't believe me from day one that I had nothing to do with this. Because they were the ones that talked me into going with a three-judge panel because I didn't know no better. You have to do very little work as an attorney for a three-judge panel case. So the trial took place on February 6, 1989 in the Cuyahoga Court of Common Pleas. As you said, in front of a three-judge panel, the prosecutor was Carmen Marino. Now, important to note that no murder weapon was ever found in this case, right? So how the hell do you send a guy, much less two, to death row with no murder weapon and no physical evidence? Well, back then I used to hunt and fish and I had my hunting knives. So when they came and illegally entered my house and arrested me, they took my knives and all three of my knives tested negative for blood. Yet throughout the whole trial, they waved them around and called them the murder weapons. So they're parading around false evidence. What the hell else was presented against you? Most of the time on the stand was covered by Espinosa and Paul Stoney Lewis. You know, when the two real murderers are taking the stand and they're backed up by the prosecutor, and then you throw in this joke of a coroner we had that all she ever did was rubber stamp whatever the cops said, that was their whole prosecution. Ed Espinosa said he stood there and watched why me and Mike Keenan killed Anthony Clan. Stoney says the night that Anthony was killed was the night that we were in the bars. A very, very important problem with this is that he mixed up September 23rd and September 22nd. Exactly. What it was is they wouldn't say dates. All they kept saying is on the night when we went to the bar, when we were there, when we were all together. Nobody used a date. And were you elbowing your lawyer going, hey, 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 that's the wrong... Oh, you bet. They did bring up the idea that the state was painting the wrong day because the day that you were at the bar was tequila night. Right. And so tequila night was Thursday, not Friday. And you even had the proprietor of the bar, Stephen Gaines, I believe was his name. Yes. Stephen Gaines literally came and took the stand and said... 
these men were there on tequila night, Thursday, not Friday. So this discrepancy was actually clearly pointed out. And I mean, do we even have any theory whatsoever about how this three judge panel could have been so blind and gotten this so totally wrong? You know, you've got anybody that might have been put on the stand for Joe's case were not available at the time of the trial to establish that alibi for Joe or to even be there as a character witness. And so you put that up against Eddie Espinoza as suspect as he may be, but he's claiming to be an eyewitness to this. And it literally becomes, you know, where's the greater weight of the evidence and the credibility? And, you know, the three judge panel who were all former prosecutors have that prosecutorial bent and they're going to lean that way to begin with. See, the one thing that I made my attorneys do is let me testify. And I figured if I could get up there and tell the truth, the judges would be like, come on, this this case is just wrong, you know, and release me. So my attorneys threw me up there cold. They didn't give me any preparation. They didn't object when the, the prosecutor just tore me to pieces. They kept telling me I'm lying. I'm just saying all this to save my life. But the sad part is they had evidence that proved that everything I said was true. And they hid it from me. In a blink of an eye, my trial's over with. I have the shortest death penalty trial in the state of Ohio history, two and three quarter days from let's start to you die. You know, you hear that they're going to pass 30,000 volts through your body until you are dead for something I had nothing to do with. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. 
Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. So I was ordained in 1995, and I was reading a Catholic Newsweek called National Catholic Reporter. And in that, there was a brother, Patrick Bird from Texas, who had his own death row pentail ministry. And he was looking for people to join him in writing to death row inmates. I eventually started writing to many, many, many of the inmates and became pen pals with them, including Joe. And in December of 1998, Dorothy D'Ambrosio, Joe's mother, passed away here in Cleveland. I found out about it through the obituaries in the newspaper. And so on Joe's behalf, I went to the funeral home to pay my respects. And then the next day, I actually went to the church to celebrate his mother's funeral mass. And then the next time I was down on death row, I asked the corrections officers if I could have just a few minutes of Joe's time to express my condolences and paint a picture of his mother's funeral for him. At this point, I was writing everybody, every law school, every journalism school, all the news media. I was writing everybody, trying to get somebody to help me. But now I have a human being in my cell and he can't run away because he's locked in there with me. So he's sitting there trying to explain my mother's funeral to me and I'm thanking him profusely, but I'm like, but you don't understand. You have to help me. I didn't do what they said I did. And he's like, yeah, no, no, no. And he would go back to talking about my mom's funeral. And then I would thank him again, you know, and be like, you know, I appreciate it and everything, but you don't understand. They're trying to put me where she's at. They're trying to murder me for something I had nothing to do. And that's when the attorney of him kicked in because he's not only a priest, he's an attorney and a registered nurse. And he had to be all three things to do what he did for me. And so I, I took the trial transcript home and I read it from cover to cover the first night. And I knew that there was at least something wrong because I was reading the coroner's testimony and she was describing Anthony Klan's wounds. Now, Anthony Klan was sliced ear to ear and then stabbed three times in the chest. He was almost decapitated. And so she testifies that after these massive holes are created in the trachea, that based on Eddie Espinosa's testimony, Anthony is running away from his perpetrators, literally screaming for his life, don't kill me, don't kill me, please don't kill me. Now, you don't have to be a nurse to understand that when your airway is compromised, especially as severely as his was, that you're not whispering, let alone screaming anything. And not only that, but they all testified that he had 650 milliliters of blood in his chest cavity. And if you saw these wounds, you would know without question that he wasn't running at all, that he would never have been able to speak, and he would have been drowning in his own secretions. And I'm like, somebody got away with this testimony, either lying or the cross-examination just was totally non-existent or totally ineffective. And I began to ask myself, what else could be wrong in this case? Tell us about what you found and how it led to where we are today. So I went down to the records room of the Cuyahoga County Justice Center 
and I started pulling the microfiche files of all the major names in this case. And then just as a fluke, I decided to pull Anthony Clan's microfiche file and came across a notation from a police report that Anthony had witnessed a rape in May 1988. And then you find out that the rapist is one Paul Stoney Lewis. And then in the records, they gave the name of the rape victim, a guy by the name of Christopher Longenecker. Christopher is blind and suffers from cerebral palsy, but he can read in just a very small sliver. And so Christopher Longenecker gets this notice that he needs to appear in court for a pretrial. And, and he does. He, he shows up at the courthouse on August 11th, but he had misread it. He was supposed to be there on August 1st. And because the only witness didn't show up, they released Paul Stoney Lewis, who had been in jail down there since May. And now you've got a previous rapist just out on his own recognizance. And there's one guy out there that can testify him and put him in back in jail for a long, 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 long time. And that's Anthony Clan. And all of a sudden, Anthony Clan ends up dead in Don Creek. And the guy that points his finger to Joe is Paul Stoney Lewis, the guy who has the most to do to save his neck. So that rape was the seminal thing that got us back into federal court. And Judge Kathleen O'Malley of the uh, district court here in Cuyahoga County, the 6th District Federal Court, gave us sweeping discovery, which literally said we had full access to the police files, the coroner's files, the prosecutor's files. Almost nothing could be withheld from us. So in July 2004, at an evidentiary hearing, they presented the following evidence, none of which was given to the defense before Joe's initial trial. So two former Cleveland police detectives testified that because no grass or weeds were disturbed in the area where Klan's body had been found, they believed he was killed elsewhere and dumped in the creek. Klan's ex-roommate, Chris Longenecker testified that Lewis had raped him shortly before Klan was killed. Longenecker said that after hearing of Klan's murder, Longenecker called the police to say that he believed Klan was killed because he was likely aware of the rape. The records showing that at one time police had had an audio recording of a statement from a man named Angelo Cremini, who also implicated others in the murder. At the same July 2004 hearing, Joe's trial lawyer testified that during a pretrial conference with Marino, he was not allowed to see any police reports. He was allowed to take notes as Marino read selected portions. Huh. Yeah. Okay. I wonder which ones they selected. And then the alibi. Finally, right? The alibi. Other witnesses now testify that on the night of September 23rd, 1988, Joe was not at Coconut Joe's, but rather was hosting a party at his own apartment because he was being evicted. One witness who was pregnant and therefore not drinking recalled that Joe had passed out on his bed. It's really hard. I don't know. I've never stabbed anyone, but I don't think I could do it while I was passed out, even if I wanted to. So there was another piece of evidence that came to light for us was we have a witness by the name of Linda de Blasio, who was a barmaid at Coconut Joe's, who testified that Anthony Klan came to her bar on Friday night. This would have been now 24 hours after the state said that he was dead. And she served Anthony Klan, alcohol served him, and realized that he was not in any kind of shape 
to get home on his own, so literally gave him money for a cab so that he could get home. So finally, on March 24, 2006, Judge O'Malley granted the writ because of the failure to turn over exculpatory evidence. The conviction was vacated and the new trial was ordered. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit affirmed the ruling, saying that the withheld evidence would have, quote, substantially increased reasonable jurors' doubt of D'Ambrosio's guilt, end quote. The court said the evidence not only contradicted or weakened Espinosa's testimony, and he was, of course, the only eyewitness for the prosecution, but also demonstrated a motive for Lewis to kill Klan. And, of course, the state fought to retry you despite the evidence of your innocence that they've been withholding since the investigation, and your team sought to bar the prosecution from retrying you. And then something weird happens. One day before O'Malley ruled not to bar retrial, Edward Espinoza, who had been released after serving 12 years, was found dead in a Chicago suburb. Now, who knows if this is a coincidence or not? But anyway, your team renewed their motion to bar a retrial, arguing that they would not be able to cross-examine the only eyewitness against Joe with all the newly discovered evidence. The motion was granted, and after the state's appeal was ultimately denied, your nightmare was finally over. Can you tell us about your first taste of freedom? Well, the first time I was actually out, I was out on bond. And so that was like the first time that I was actually out in fresh air without bars around me. I was on that for exactly one year before Judge Sinnenberg dismissed the case and refused to allow him to retry me. But Joe, where was the first place your lawyers took you on the day (laughs) that you were freed? They took me across the street from the Justice Center to a bar to have a drink. And who was having a fit? You were having a fit. Because <laughs> he's like, really? He was in this because he was at bars, and now you're going to take him to a bar and give him alcohol. And they were like, yes, yes, we are. <laughs> give him whatever you want at that point. <laughs> exactly right. And Jesus, I feel like I need a drink after hearing your story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. There's a part that that you guys don't know and never made it into the trial records or trial transcripts, but it's the smoking gun. And the smoking gun is Teresa Farinacci. So Teresa Farinacci is a woman who lived in Little Italy at the time of the murder. Teresa Farinacci knows dates and times because she anchors everything that she does around her niece's wedding. So on Friday night, Teresa Farinacci is at her niece's wedding rehearsal and dinner. Comes home on Friday night, early Saturday morning, where she hears a violent altercation taking place in the home next to her. This is Little Italy. They are separated by just little alleyways that maybe one or two people side by side can walk through. And she hears this violent altercation taking place and calls the police. And the police logs, still in existence, indicate that the police responded to her call. But when they arrived, everything's calm. And so rather than investigate, the police just say, well, whatever it is, it's over with. Now comes Saturday morning, and Teresa Farinacci is going to her niece's wedding, and she's being picked up. And as she walks out of the house, she glances at the street next to her where Mike Keenan's truck is parked because Eddie Espinoza was Mike Keenan's foreman for his Sunshine Landscaping Company. And so Eddie Espinoza often borrowed Mike Keenan's truck for his own personal use with Mike Keenan's permission. And Anthony Klan is in the bed of the truck. And she calls out to Anthony Klan and he does not respond. She thinks that he's sleeping off a drunk. And so she calls out to Anthony Klan again with no response. And she says, you know, because the U.S. Marshals interviewed her in Joe's retrial proceedings, that she wishes she had gone over to literally check on him because she would have found out that he was dead in the bed of that truck on Saturday. But she was going to be late if she didn't. So she gets in the car and she goes off to the wedding. And there's Anthony Klan in the bed of that truck. And the U.S. Marshals say to her, so you think you saw Anthony Klan in the bed of that truck. And she says, you're not listening to me. She said, I know I saw Anthony Klan in the bed of that truck. And that was Saturday as she was going to her niece's wedding. But because we never got to a retrial, that's not out there. Oh, but wait, wait, he, you, you, you didn't hear the best part. Guess who lives in the apartment next to her? Where the commotion was taking place. Tell me. Paul Stoney Lewis. Saw that coming. On that very same night, Friday night to Saturday morning, there is an affidavit from a married couple that live in that same complex 
this man and woman swore out an affidavit that that very same night they heard someone say, we need to dump the body in the basement. And so we believe that is where Anthony Klan was murdered. We believe he was murdered by Paul Lewis and Eddie Espinoza in concert with each other. We believe that he was later taken from that basement, thrown in the bed of that truck, and dropped off at Doan's Creek sometime Saturday morning, early afternoon. Joe, have you ever received any compensation? We struck a deal with the state of Ohio to get me compensation. Nowhere near anything I should have gotten and I could have gotten if I continued to fight it in the courts, but I'm getting too old. I needed something to retire on. Well, listen, I wish you nothing but the best of everything. Thank you. And of course, um, now we turn to our closing of our show, which is appropriately called Closing Arguments. First of all, I thank you once again. I really appreciate you being on the podcast today. And now, Closing Arguments works like this. I turn off my microphone, kick back in my chair, and just listen. You get to say whatever you want. Father, with all due respect, we're going to save the best for last. The star of our show, of course, is Joe, but it's so great to have you here. And Joe, if you wouldn't mind going first, Father Neil Kokuthe. So I would just say, when it comes to the matter of sentencing people to death, to be very, very, very careful. People's lives are at stake here. And you know, a lot of people will tell me, I'm the liberal priest that believes everything that the death row inmate says. And that is not the truth. And Joe would be the first one to tell you that. I get letters from around the country and sometimes around the world. And many of them from guys right here on Ohio's death row saying, you need to do for me what you did for Joe. And I say to them, I didn't do anything for Joe. The evidence freed Joe. And we just needed to find it, and we just needed somebody to present it. People think he got away with murder on a technicality, and that is not the case. This went through district court, federal court, Supreme Court, with some of the finest jurists in the country, and literally the evidence freed him. So don't take things at face value. Go deep and look, and then ask yourself some serious questions. And one of those questions for me would be this. Do we really want to give our government the power and the authority to take someone's life from them when the system is so screwed up? Joe. The thing that people have to understand is that they're murdering in your name. You're paying to have this done. To have the death penalty is so ludicrous. Places like Russia abolish their death penalty. And we still hang on to it. Because all it is is revenge. And our justice system should not be about revenge. It's not supposed to be. So if you even think for a second that the system is so perfect 
that you're willing to bet somebody's life and it could be your own, then don't do anything about it. Because like we started out saying, if this could happen to me, this could happen to you very easily. But I think you need to stand up. Right now in Ohio, we have two bills that are trying to get the death penalty abolished in Ohio. And this is the time to do it. People need to stand up and say that you don't kill in my name and to stop this stupidity that's going on with the death penalty. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Please support your local innocence organizations and go to the links in our bio now to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our amazing production team, Connor Hall, Justin Golden, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis. The music on this show, as always, is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1.